Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 64, produced 22 November 2019. Travel far enough back into time, before the birth of Christ, before the pyramids, and you'll reach a time when the Orkney Islands, situated off the northern tip of mainland Scotland, were a hotbed of modern civilization, well, Neolithic civilization. There are numerous examples of this, including the Stones of Stenness, the Ring of Brodgar, and the spectacular Scarabray. Yet almost with each passing day, more and more examples of this history are being uncovered including at an ongoing archaeological dig at the Ness of Brodgar. I'm Glenn Moyer, and for one homegrown Orcadian, these historical surroundings have made a strong impression. Michael Sinclair is a woodturner whose artistic creations are heavily influenced by the Neolithic history that surrounds his workshop. In a moment, we'll meet Michael and learn more about the art he fashions with a lathe and his own two hands, here under the tartan sky. Up in the mystic and spellbinding saga that is Outlander? Wishing you could be swept away over the sea to sky? Why not come and visit Claire and Jamie's world? It's a land of standing stones, shimmering lochs, and great glens that stretch to the horizon and beyond. Outlander, whether in books or on TV, is Scotland. Come and visit the breathtaking landscapes, walk the historic castle grounds, listen for the skirl of the pipes through the thickening mists. You can travel through time when you visit and experience Scotland. Orkney Islands, more commonly referred to as just Orkney, is a group of some 70 islands located off the northern coast of mainland Scotland. Only about 20 of the islands are inhabited, and the largest of those is mainland. Located just 10 miles off the coast of Scotland, these islands have been inhabited for almost 9,000 years, first by the Mesolithic and then Neolithic tribes, and then by the Picts. The earliest known settlement is said to date to 3500 BC, but Europe's best preserved Neolithic settlement, Scarabray, is said to date to about 3100 BC. Together with the Standing Stones of Stenness and others at the Ring of Brodgar, this area, located on mainland, was declared the Heart of Neolithic Orkney as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1999. Orkney was also home to a Royal Navy base at Scapa Flow, and it played a major role in both World Wars I and II. The famous Italian chapel, built and decorated by Italian prisoners of war held there in World War II, is just one of many well-known tourist destinations on the islands. Along with all of this history, 
the Orkney Islands feature many other factors that today make it a popular tourist destination. A culture where Viking influences are still seen in felt, dramatic scenery ranging from sandy beaches to towering red sandstone cliffs, wide-open sweeping vistas, and wildlife like burgeoning seabird colonies, including the beloved Puffin, and much more. In both 2013 and 14, Orkney was voted Best Place to Live in Scotland, and in 2019, Orkney was named the Best Place to Live in the UK by the Halifax Quality of Life Survey. I was fortunate to visit mainland Orkney this past summer, and in my week there, I barely scratched the surface of this amazing part of Scotland. One thing that strikes you early on in any visit to Orkney, thanks to its wide-open, unspoilt landscape made up of rich, fertile, rolling green hills, is the almost complete absence of trees. So it was quite surprising to find a woodturner as one of the artisans listed on Orkney's creative trail. Now, this trail was established in the 1990s and guides visitors to the workshops and galleries of creative artisans throughout Orkney. There are jewelers, potters, furniture makers, photographers, painters, weavers, silversmiths, and Michael Sinclair, registered professional turner. Michael was born on one of the northern Orkney Islands where his father, a self-taught mechanic, owned a garage, but the family moved to mainland Scotland when he was just two. After schooling in Invergordon, he returned to Orkney with his parents upon their retirement, and he did what many islanders do. He went to sea. Sinclair worked first for a few years on the ferries that served the northern Orkney Islands, then did eight years or so on fishing boats before eventually moving for the next 20 years to the tugs working Scapa Flow. It was while working on the tugs that he first tried his hand at wood-turning. Initially, it was just a hobby, a way to fill his downtime when ashore. Circumstance would dictate, though, that his hobby would one day become his vocation, as Michael will explain. But it's no small leap to go from seaman to woodturner. So I asked Michael what first interested him to explore a craft that would one day become his art. Well, my father, obviously, as I said, he had the, the garage. He was a mechanic, engineer, uh-huh. self-taught. And he always had a lathe at home, a metal turning lathe. And he made model steam engines and things like that. Oh, and he wow. was always making bits and bobs or mending things. But I never, I couldn't get on with metalwork or that, even though he tried to show me and everything. So I just decided I would try a, a wood turning lathe. And uh, I just bought a really cheap one and some books out of the library and had a go. And it was, I kind of <laughs> worked along from that. So is it, in your case then, was wood turning pretty much a um, kind of a self-taught skill, a trial by error thing? I mean, it doesn't sound like you had any particular education or didn't do an apprenticeship or anything of that nature. No, no, it was just purely self-taught and just a hobby was all it was was ever going to be, you know. And, you know, I like I like nice equipment and, you know, decent quality tools and things like that. You know, my father, had he it was good quality tools that he had, even though they were old or whatever, but they were always good quality yeah. things, and he would buy decent stuff secondhand or whatever. So I kind of got that off him a wee bit. So as I got a bit better at it, I improved the equipment that I had. So, you know, but I was still buying secondhand. My first 
what I would call a really good lathe was a second-hand lathe out of one of the, well, it was before eBay and the like, so it was <laughs> a magazine called The Exchange in March, so it was bought out of that. But it was still a really good lathe. It had been uh, in the technical department of a school somewhere. Uh -huh. So that was me. It's still in the shed. It was still in the workshop that you were in. It's oh, still my goodness. So, and you've had that now for how many years? Oh, 20... Yeah, 20 years nearly. And it okay. was uh, the lathe was actually built in 1972, so... Yeah, and then just the rest of the tools I added to it. Yeah. So much of your work, I gather, is themed around or certainly incorporates themes, whether in the design of the, the type of bowls, etc., that you're turning to the patterns you that you decorate with or Neolithic, was that always kind of your intention once you started this as a hobby, or was that something that developed along the way? No, that, that's really developed more more recently, or, or since we've gone full-time at it, you know, over the last five or six years. I'd, I'd always seen the, the bowls in... Um, Tankinus House Museum in Kirkwell since I was a a young lad we used to have a look in there when we were home on holidays as I said and I always remember the wee bowls there the wee clay bowls and the decorations on them and the round bottoms but it's taken a long while for it to click so it's only more recently that you know that I've put the designs together and the shapes of the bowls and connections with the Nessa Brodger and the decorations and the stones there, so it's it's been a long development. I've always had an inkling to do these round bottom bowls and, you know, ones that don't necessarily sit on a table very well, but they may sit on a sandy floor or something, but <laughs> I never knew they can, didn't make the connection until more recently. Uh -huh. Did you always have an interest in the uh, Neolithic history or... Uh, I mean, was that, is that perhaps from having grown up here on Orkney? Because certainly you're surrounded with it here. Um, or was it just a, an, an artistic sort of thing that took you in that direction? I think it, it was just a case. There was something there. I wouldn't say I had a real interest in in the Neolithic. You know, obviously we were, I went to the Ring of Brodger and, you know, the the usual things. But it was just... I don't know what happened that it just made the jump from the kind of bowls that I was turning and then it, I just realised that they lent themselves to doing the same as what had been done in the pottery and the decoration, the pyrography and everything was like the incisions that they made on the stones or on the pots and I could do it on the, the wooden bowls with the pyrography and everything. So And then we started using the hematite to colour it as well and that worked well on the wooden bowls mm -hmm. as well. So it, it worked well together. It just seemed to click and it wasn't really a conscious thing. It just seemed to develop. And Okay. Growing up on Orkney, when you have all of this history around you as a tourist, I'm awestruck by it. And, and that's part of the reason why I'm here. But does it have the same effect on you if you grow up here on Orkney or is it just, does it become sort of commonplace and you just really don't give it much thought? Yeah. You probably get a wee bit blasé about it right enough. <laughs> I think as I've got older, it, it's sunk in better to me, you know, realise yeah. what, what you've got. As always, I suppose, wherever you are, you, you don't... Sure. 
you know. You tend to take for granted what's yeah, right on your doorstep yeah. when other people go, wow. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, when you just sit and think about it and, you know, or, or walk among it, you know, you, you realize it's quite special. Mm -hmm. That seems to make your work quite unique, is what you're doing in terms of your wood turning and, and using the, the Neolith, Neolithic, I'm having a hard time with that word, Neolithic influences. Is that commonplace in wood turning in this part of the world? Or, or is that in fact, does that in fact make your work somewhat unique? I would hope it's quite unique. I, I don't really see much else of it around. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I hope it's, I, I do, obviously keep an eye on what's going on in the wood turning world as they say but you know it's there's not many wood turners in Orkney so it, it's I think I'm the only one doing it in Orkney you know and so that's the kind of thing like the Orkney chairs or whatever there's not much right. point in making an Orkney chair if you live in Edinburgh is it people <laughs> want to buy an Orkney chair made in Orkney so right yeah, yeah. it is and that's an interesting concept too about wood turning in general is it is it a dying skill? Is there demand for that sort of thing? Will you pass on your skill to, to someone else, take an apprentice or something at some point? Have you ever given that much thought? Yeah, I've been asked that a number of times, whether I would take on an apprentice or whatever. But the trouble is, that with me being self-taught, you know, it's not really... I wouldn't feel right. I couldn't really say to somebody, there you go, you're qualified now after working yeah. with me for four years or whatever. You know, I don't think it's something that I could do. And also with the type of business we have, then if you would say it's it's my ideas and influences or whatever that makes the final product so you can't really tell somebody else to do it and this is what we're going to do it you'd lose a bit on that mm. you know so it's difficult to to do it but i think it, it's still developing in the uk as it, it seems to be quite a big hobby market now uh -huh. you know i kind of liken it a bit to fishing you know retired guys used to get the fishing gear or, or maybe even their golf gear or whatever but i think quite a lot of guys are getting into the wood turning now they do there's an association of wood turners of great britain and they try to encourage young turners uh -huh. and the like you know so that they are trying to develop that but you so, know so there is sort of a next generation of wood turners coming along then well there's still there's quite a lot of shows and and everything over the years you know down south so there is that but i would say it's still probably a, an old man's game a bit you know for <laughs> but there there are the association is trying to encourage younger uh -huh. people into yeah certainly there was a time when wood turning was essential uh, people had to eat off of wooden plates and with wooden utensils and for food storage etc is that still a part of the the skill the industry whatever you want to call it or is most of the serious wood turning done today more, as I perceive your work to be, and please correct me if I'm wrong, more of, of a collectible artistic type of work? Yeah, the, the, there are still guys that make utilitarian pieces. You know, the, your usual plates and salad bowls and whatever, but they, they have to make 
large quantities of them to make a living. Mm -hmm. and there, there are still production turners that, that make steer spindles and the likes of that, but certainly it's not something that would be easy for me to do up here. Also, it's not really a route I would want to go down either. I, I don't think, I think you would need to have served an apprenticeship with somebody doing that to be able to develop a business like that. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the freight costs up here, the amount of timber you would have to ship in and shipping the finished product out for up here, it wouldn't be viable anyway. Uh -huh. You know, but there are, there are still guys doing, you know, real McCoy wood turning then that's functional and... It's utilitarian yeah, purposes as yeah. opposed to your type of work that's more artistic. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. There, there are... You know, lots of guys do demonstrate their work and and at shows and uh, go around and demonstrate to clubs, wood turning clubs, and well, even they travel to the states and that too. They uh -huh. have your shows over there as well, just the same. But there there is a big collectors market in the states as well, possibly more so than in the UK. Really? Yeah. You you touched on um, the freight cost of in shipping in the wood, importing the wood. Orkney, one of the things I've learned in the week that I've been here is that there are not a lot of trees on Orkney, and those that are here are fairly small. You don't certainly have the big, huge oak trees and things, magnolias, and on and on and on that we enjoy in the States. Um, so how do you go about resourcing wood for your business? Well, we... Basically, you phone around and, and make contacts. <laughs> and more recently, it, it's uh, basically a guy that gets his timber for firewood that we've been dealing with, uh -huh. and he's in the Inverness area. So we can actually get on the ferry from here, go down to Inverness, speak to him, pick a couple of logs from him before he cuts it up into small pieces, and get back home at the same day, you know, so we're only a day away from home. And then we get some of the local hauliers to pick it up for us so we can buy a couple of logs and take it home that way. Okay. And it was going to be turned into firewood anyway, so we're kind of saving it from being firewood. Yeah, yeah. But then there's not many silver mines in Orkney either, so everybody's got to import <laughs> something, yeah. Fair enough. Um, what types of woods do you enjoy working with? What do you resource uh, from, uh, from Inverness and, and other parts? Well, really, it's Scottish hardwoods is basically what we go for. The Neolithic bowls are really quite good if they're made out of sycamore because you can see the lighter coloured woods and you can see the decoration on them or if you put hematite, the colouring on it, you know, you can see that it stands out. So that's quite good and sycamore is quite nice to work with, but Scottish elm, oak, anything you just whatever they, they have. Try to get a selection because then you're selling the different types of wood as well. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you know everybody's tastes are, are different. So it's nice to have light woods and dark woods. So, you know, we just work as, in general, it's just the Scottish hardwoods. I saw it in your gallery. You do a variety of different shapes, bowls, and also the, forgive me for lack of technical, but what appeared, what appeared to be the Neolithic balls is is there a particular type of wood that is 
more suitable for a particular type of product that you make? Yeah, the the wooden balls are based on the the petrospheres that have been found, the stone balls that's been found in Orkney here and a lot in mainland Scotland as well. I think they've catalogued something like 600 odd in the Museum of Scotland and intricately carved stone balls, which is quite amazing for the, you know, the age there. So I actually use English boxwood to do the one kind and I use old crown green bowling balls to make the darker coloured ones because they're, they're really dense hardwoods and they take the details really nicely mm -hmm. you know you can get crisp details on them so they're they're nice plus they have a a good weight to them as well so they're not as heavy as stone they having said that the, it would hurt if you got hit with yeah one. <laughs> the, and the, the i know from picking one up the bowling balls that are made from lignum vitae so it sinks anyway so it's got quite a nice feel to a similar uh -huh. kind of they're similar size maybe slightly lighter but they still got a good weight to them so it's better than using sycamore would be too light you know so the boxwood and the the bowling balls are quite good for that You've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation here using the the hematite. I think you said yeah to, to do the coloring. Now, is that the the paste that's made from the iron ore that yeah um, that I was seeing when I was by the workshop? Yeah, basically that. Just the the iron ore. The, the so that that starts out as as it started out as a chunk of literally a, a rock, a chunk a chunk of iron yeah. ore, and then how do you create something that you can then paint or color your wood with? Well, we actually don't. They ca I've not found a piece here. I was given a piece by one of the uh -huh. archaeologists here. <laughs> okay. But they, I believe they find it in Hoy, but I've I've not found any yet. But that will be a sortie in the winter time, likely. But we get it in a quite a coarse powdered form, and I grind it up with water a wee bit more. To it's just like a water-based dye. Okay. And it can be just painted on the wood or, or whatever. It's a really nice dye, you know. And you can put on more coats or add more powder to the water or whatever, and it, it just makes a really nice dye for the for the wood. And it's authentic as well to the, the Neolithic, you know. So that was something they would have used to colour some of the, the stone craft that they were making in those yeah, times? Yeah, I then? believe so, yeah. yeah. They found traces of it on some of the stone faces and... And the likes. We are, the Nessa Broadgood does a, a couple of open days a year to just for people to see what's going on and we were actually at, at one of them with the, the bowls and everything and they were they were grinding some of the hematite there so we just tried it on a bowl to see how it went and it, it worked so we just carried on doing it you know we mm -hmm. developed a bit more and once once you seal it with an oil finish or whatever, it, then it it's sealed into the wood and it's it's quite quite efficient. As opposed to turning wood, how much time do you spend keeping abreast of learning, reading, researching, call it what you will, what is happening? Because I know there there all there are fairly recent Neolithic finds here. There's a running joke around the island that all you have to do is put a spade in the ground and you'll find something historic. But do, do you have to do a certain amount of reading and, and keeping up with current events with regard to the historic finds here to continue to be inspired for your work? Or 
Um, or is it something that you just sort of casually come across? Well, with Twitter and Facebook and everything, <laughs> if, if you follow follow these things, they've all got their their presence on social media. So uh -huh. if you get the updates from them, then you can quite easily find out what's going on or what's been found. And we've also been luckily lucky enough to to get to see the finds in over the winter. Um, we got to see quite a few of the finds over the years that they've come across, and and it's quite amazing to see it close at hand. You know, yeah, uh, it's quite a privilege to be be able to to get involved and and see that. You know, so I think there's there's a lot more, hopefully, in the pipeline that with ideas and everything that I've seen. Sometimes you know the the link can be quite tenuous, but you know there is a link there. Right, right. Can you take me through the process? When I was at your shop, I, I was you were showing me a um, a log where you had obviously drawn on the piece of wood the bowl that was going to come out of that log. Mm -hmm. Can you can you kind of take me through the steps from you select a piece of wood and go, okay, I'm out of this. I'm going to make X, Y, Z. And, and then where do you go from there? What are the steps that you go through from from having that piece of raw wood and an idea to putting that finished product up on a shelf in your gallery? Well, it, it, basically from the log, depending on the size of it, obviously, but the, the, the blanks themselves come out of thick planks, if you would. You know, a normal plank is an inch thick and six or eight inches wide so the planks that we use are four inches thick or six inches thick and whatever width diameter you want the bowl to be so you don't start with just like a raw round i mean you do a raw round log but do you cut that into a plank first yeah okay yeah okay. and then you can decide I don't know if you noticed i had different sized templates in the hanging up on the yeah, workshop wall yeah. so you know, ranging in six inches in diameter up to 12 inches in diameter. So you can lay them out on the plank and you can figure out what size of bowls or whether there's defects that you want to keep or that you don't want to have in it. And then you cut out each individual blank, as okay. we call it, and then it goes on the lathe. So normally I don't do production runs or anything, but I might do four round bottom bowls say so i'll have four blanks that i say these are going to be round bottom bowls they're going to be roughly seven inches in diameter four inches thick and work on that and they'll each have probably have different decoration on them so you turn the outside first to the the shape the finished shape then hollow them out and i work i do everything straight f from the log to the finished bowl in one go then. I don't let the timber dry in between times or anything. It dries in the shape of the finished bowl. And if it distorts or whatever, then that's okay, as far as I'm concerned. And right. it would seem the people that are buying them are quite happy with that as well. And then once they're dry, they do sit on a shelf in the workshop to dry. Once they've been hollowed and sanded, they, they're left to dry for however long it takes, four weeks, six weeks. And then 
I start to do the decoration and everything on it then. And that can probably take as long as the turning, if not longer. Mm -hmm. It's all done by hand with the pyrography and, and the colouring. And then it goes from that stage to the oiling, which is a Danish oil we use. So it has four or five coats of that. So that's usually, you know, it's best to leave it 24 hours between coats. And then they get a final polish and buff up and then they go into the gallery then so it's you know it can vary with some pieces depending on the weather and how quick things dry <laughs> if you have a dry <laughs> blank then we can get it done a bit quicker but you know it's just ongoing you, it's quite nice to have different bowls at different stages because yeah. if you get fed up working on the lathe, you can go and do decoration or, or whatever. Or do some oiling. Or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, So you exactly. have things in different stages of production all the time. Yeah, probably. and it keeps you, you know, keeps you amused better. Than, keeps you sane. Yeah, a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were just saying that sometimes in the drying process, the wood will actually deform. And um, I saw a couple of pieces in your gallery where sometimes that deforming might take the form of even a crack a break or something, or is it mostly a um, just a shape deformation? Um, for example, and I want to get into the round bottom bowl you were just talking about. For example, the bowl that I got from you, I noticed that if you turn it upside down, it doesn't sit flat. It, there's a slight wobble to it. When you, obviously, when you turn it round the way it's supposed to be used, then it sits flat. And you were telling me at the workshop that that's the last step you do, yeah. rounding it out and making it true on the bottom so yeah. that it sits flat properly on a surface. Yeah, that's the the only thing that's done. Obviously, if it's a round bottom bowl, it doesn't matter. But if it's if it's meant to sit on a flat base, that's the last thing that, that we do. So we flatten the base. So it doesn't matter if there's distortion on the rim or right. on the rest of the bowl. So it won't... You know, as you say, the rim's out of true, but the base will be flat, so it'll sit on the table right. flat. Yeah. Then. So that that's just the the last thing to do after the drying process is finished. But usually do that before we do any decoration, because if you make a mistake when you're taking the bottom off and you've spent a couple of hours decorating, <laughs> then that's a kind of painful yeah, that's, process. <laughs> that's work that ends up in sawdust, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a preference for uh, of the various products that you've made through your your time? Do you have a preference for? Um, uh, do you like making one product over the the balls versus the round bottom bowls versus some of the other more decorative pieces that I saw? Um, and everything you do isn't a bowl. No, no, no. I, I know. I don't want to make it sound like we're just talking about bowls because you do a lot. I saw a lot of different types of wood turning examples there in your in your gallery. Yeah. Well, the. Apart from the bowls and the balls, we do the boxwood and the lignum vitae and the likes lend themselves to taking threads. So you can actually hand cut, hand chase threads into them. So you can make small boxes with screw top lids. Mm -hmm. So it's, they're really good fun to do. And also it's, it's nice to do the balls as well because it's they're all done by eye they're not done with a jig or anything so it's a challenge to see how near to a perfect sphere you can get i don't think many of them would work on a pool table but you know it's good <laughs> fun to try and get them as near as possible <laughs> well, 
what do you find, what, what kind of reaction do you get from, from customers? And, and tourism is a big part of your business, certainly being here in Orkney, it would almost have to be. Um, what kind of reactions do you find from uh, f- folks who come from afar and come in and, and see your gallery and see your products? Well, I would say it's quite positive, usually, you know, there's, because we're on the creative trail, people use it as a way to explore the county then, and most of them are interested in wood or the whole process as well, to actually see a log line out in the yard and, you know, in the workshop we have the blanks to show them and, right. and the likes, and then to actually see the finished piece. It's quite a leap for some of them to realise that, you know, from log to the the finished article. You know, I guess maybe, as you said before, alluded to that handmade pieces are not the norm nowadays, you know, so I think people like to see that, you know, they actually like to see the workshop as much as anything, mm-hmm. maybe, you know. Yeah, yeah. And wood turning is not the only skill that you've obviously shown some expertise in. Um, you were telling me you, you actually designed and built your home here. Um, was that an outgrowth of your, you're already working in wood, or was that out of necessity? Um, <laughs> well, I suppose it was a, a cost <laughs> issue, right enough. But it was, it was something myself and Sarah thought we would we would do, you know. And it was. I don't know if I would do it now, <laughs> ten years on, <laughs> whether I would be quite as brave. But it it just seemed like a good idea, and it was it wasn't too too stressful, believe it or not. Yeah. We got the the builder guys to to do the founds and, and the the concrete base, the basic floor. So we had something flat to start with. Uh-huh. And then it was just a case of doing all the wood woodwork. So it wasn't, you know, it's not rocket science. <laughs> well, to some of us it might be. Um, I've always said my dad was handy with wood, my grandfather, but I can't build a square box. Um, now you put me in front of a computer like we're sitting now and I can work magic, but um, yeah, I, I've I've built I built a cat tree for my cats not long ago. I, I'll have to show you a picture of it, and I was quite pleased with it. But I'm not sure it's entirely square. Well, I su- <laughs> which is a good thing that because the cats don't care, I suppose. Have you heard of Norm Abram? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I've seen a lot of his shows. Well, the new Yankee Workshop. He's probably yeah. got a lot to blame for it because he used to watch that. That was a. I used to love that program. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've seen many hours of that on yeah. on uh, PBS in, in the states. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when did when did you you said you started this out as a hobby, uh, obviously during your leave time from the boats. When did you start to think maybe there was, uh, you could make something there would be a demand for and an appreciation for and decide to turn this into a business? Well, kind of got pushed into it because uh, obviously you have to have a medical to go to see. So I failed my medical due to my eyesight. So it was just a decision that myself and Sarah made. We had, we had obviously we had all the equipment or the bulk of the equipment that I'd bought yeah. over the years. So what we did then was rig up a, 
well the gallery as you see it we we did that and then we applied to go on the creative trail so we got vetted for that and they allowed us on onto the trail as we'd you know our work was good enough to to get on it so we did that and then it was a case of hoping that people would come past <laughs> <laughs> and have they yeah 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 it's it's been good i don't think we'll We'll ever be millionaires, but we we won't be living in a cardboard box, so that's okay. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Um, and so, how long now has have you been operating it as a business? Five years. Okay. This is into our fifth year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So. So did you have like a five-year business plan when you started, or did you just start putting stuff up on the shelf, put a price no, tag on it, and hope? Get the shelves filled and hope that <laughs> hope somebody would buy it. Yeah. Um, I, I guess let me wrap things up with maybe a final question then. Um, what do you hope people see in your work? I, I, I now own a piece of your work. Um, what would you hope that, that I take away from that or that that comes to represent it, it for me from your creative process? What do you hope people see in your work? I don't know so much to see anything, I hope you appreciate that it's been handmade and as I said, right from the log to the finished bowl in on our premises. But I hope it's, even though it's not necessarily functional, I hope it's something that you would pick up and hold, you know, at some time, you know, not every day or whatever, but you know, as you're going by, you say, oh, there it is, I'll pick it up and hold it and have a wee look at it you might notice something new in it or whatever but the more the pieces are handled as well you know they develop their own patina and mm -hmm. wear and you know just something nice to to have I enjoy having them when working and decorating them because it's nice you know to spend a bit of time with them as well before they go away rather than just thinking oh it's on the lathe and off the lathe but actually sitting and decorating them you know it's quite nice to do so I would hope if you with your piece that you just have a look at it and hold it and put it back you know and just that you're happy to see it there. Do, do you ever create a piece that you you think mm, I think I'll just keep this? There are a few pieces yeah. But <laughs> I see Sarah giving us a look from across the yeah, room. Yeah well I have to prize them out of Sarah's hands and, <laughs> and my daughter sometime as well you know there's usually a fight but if there is a, there are one or two pieces that I've gone that I've kind of wished I'd kept. But then the other thing is that you think, well, I could possibly make one again that's even better than that. So uh -huh. that keeps going. As I was having a look around Michael's gallery, long before we ever discussed his appearing on the podcast, one piece spoke to me almost immediately. It was a small Neolithic decorated bowl made of cherry wood. Perhaps my most prized possession is a small coffee table built by my late father in high school woodshop. It, too, is made of cherry. Upon my return from Orkney, I placed my Michael Sinclair original on that table. And though my visit is only a few months removed now, I do, as Michael said he hoped I would, pick up that bowl from time to time and reflect on my newfound friendship with he and his wife Sarah and on the fine craftsmanship displayed in his work. And I reflect too and remember my dad, who, like his father before him, also loved to fashion things from wood, 
but for whom that skill remained only a hobby throughout his lifetime. To see some of Michael's work, including the bowl that I purchased, and for a link to his website, be sure to see our show notes on our website at underthetartansky.scot. There you'll also find links for more about Orkney's creative trail and its Neolithic history. You can also follow Michael on Twitter, where his username is at orkwoodturner. That's at O-R-K woodturner. Next time, as a member of the American Scottish diaspora, I, like millions of others, also have some Irish in my blood. Indeed, my Scott ancestors were Ulster Scots, leaving Scotland for Ireland before moving on to America. So when we next meet, we'll learn who the Ulster Scots were and the history that shaped their lives. When my guest will be Michael Warwick, Education Officer of the Discover Ulster Scots Center, recorded live in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Until then, I'm Glenn Moyer, Tapolev, Agus Alpa Gubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartan sky. That's the underscore symbol tartan sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>